Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up to date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today, I'll be interviewing John Hamill, PhD, LCSW, who has authored several books on domestic violence, including Gender Including Treatment of Intimate Partner Abuse, Family Interventions in Domestic Violence, Inner Partner and Family Abuse, A Casebook of Gender Inclusive Therapy, and he is currently editing the upcoming book, Beyond the Gender Paradigm, a legal primer on evidence-based criminal justice approaches to intimate partner violence. John provides therapy, oversees an anger management program, is an expert witness, a teacher, and an author. He has published numerous books, chapters, and peer-reviewed research on the topic of domestic violence. Let's listen to the interview. So thanks for coming and joining us today and wanted to find out a little bit more about your work. I know we were talking the other day on the phone and it sounds like you are doing a lot of work uh, and have a lot of expertise in the domestic violence field. And this is an area that also often brings up a lot of questions from a lot of therapists, particularly even this week, I was talking with a client of mine and working with a family. And then there was some potential domestic violence in the couple. And then there's the question of, can we then work with them? Do we need to refer out? And particularly as an emotionally focused couple therapy supervisor, you know, with EFT, one of the kind of things that they say is that it's contraindicated if there's domestic violence. Um, but I think as we were talking that oftentimes, you know, kind of assessing for what's what, what allows one to do couples work or individual work or group work is um, very nuanced. And, and you had some really interesting perspectives on it. So love to hear about your work and what you've been doing and yeah, thoughts on all of, all of this. All right. Well, I'll start by saying that uh, the key consideration in trying to understand domestic violence is to understand that it's highly politicized. It's a highly politicized field. Mm. So in order to talk intelligently about how to, about best practices, best policies, it's really important that we all uh, remain free of ideological allegiances and that we look at the facts and we look at what the science tells us, what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, in the 1970s and 80s in the United States, a number of states began to enact laws that made, uh, that made it a criminal offense for one partner to abuse their partner in a, in a marriage. Um, and at the time, it was, and even today, the primary consideration was uh, protecting women from husbands who were quite violent and who weren't held accountable. Mm -hmm. um, it's, not that, it's not that no one was ever arrested for domestic violence, but it took a lot for someone to actually get arrested and convicted back in the 70s. And uh, the police sometimes, they were well-intended, but what they would try to do is mediate and tell the couples to work it out and... and you know, inevitably there would be cases where someone would be seriously injured. So mm -hmm. uh, what happened was that there, there uh, arose in the United States a movement, the battered women's movement, that sought to protect uh, women who, from, from being abused by their husbands and to hold them accountable. Uh, and that, of course, was wonderful. What happened, however, is the battered women's shelter movement, uh, which was a uh, grassroots movement of women who had been abused uh, along with their family members and friends, they really didn't have the political power 
and the uh, resources to make the kinds of changes that were necessary mm-hmm. to call attention to the problem. So they teamed up basically with uh, second wave feminists who were politically organized. Mm-hmm. Back in the 70s and 80s, second wave feminists were fighting to uh, for the ERA and they were fighting for political and social rights of women. Uh-huh. And uh, what happened was that domestic violence became subsumed as one of the causes under that broader feminist umbrella. Now, that sounds fine, except that domestic violence became a political issue rather than um, a therapeutic or, or an empirical problem to be resolved mm-hmm. uh, like any other mental health issue or substance abuse. Um, and, and what's happened since then is that we've had a series of laws and policies that, for the most part, have done a lot of good, mm-hmm. but have had a downside. And the downside is that because it's been so politicized and because domestic violence is associated with women's rights, what happens when you suggest that, you know, sometimes women are not the victims, sometimes they're the abusers, mm-hmm. uh, well, then, uh, or men, you know, can be abused as well. And they have, there's a huge impact on men's mental well-being and physical well-being of being battered. Mm-hmm. When you say things like that, you run the danger of uh, coming off as though you're an anti-feminist mm-hmm. or you're minimizing the problem. And uh, I'm, you know, a pretty staunch feminist and have been since the 1960s. So, uh, and, you know, most of my colleagues in the field who do research on domestic violence are women, and mm-hmm. I'm pretty certain they're all feminists, but mm-hmm. they're, also, they're also researchers, they're scholars, and uh, we believe that you know, it's perfectly compatible to champion the rights of women and at the same time uh, push for evidence-based practices that are free of ideology and, and uh, bias, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the main thing I wanted to say. If you understand that, then I think a lot of it a lot of the research you might look, you might come across uh, makes more sense. So, um, but I started um, as a clinical social worker in the early '90s in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, uh-huh. uh, doing just regular therapy with a number of different types of clients. And within six months of my practice, um, I had an opportunity to basically buy or purchase a colleague's uh, therapy practice, which consisted of domestic violence treatment programs for offenders. Uh-huh. And so I was, I just inherited several groups. These were men who had been arrested on a domestic violence charge. And uh, I was trained by my colleague who sold me the, his practice. I was trained in what is known as the Duluth model of treatment. The Duluth model is, is uh, references, um, a program in the city of Duluth in Minnesota where mm-hmm. one of the first shelters was established for battered women and where one of the first programs uh, for the men who battered these women was established, a treatment program to help these offenders um, become nonviolent. Wow. And, I, and the, the, the central core of the Duluth model is that domestic violence is is not a psychological issue, it's a control issue. And furthermore, it's a societal issue and that domestic violence is essentially 
the way that men maintain patriarchal dominance over women. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, in the Duluth model, a man who hits his wife is not a man who has problems with anger or stress or a personality to develop uh, due to developmental issues or, or whatever. Um, uh, men, ordinary, ordinary men use violence against women because they believe it's their right as men to control their women. Mm. This is second wave feminism, or one, let's just say it's one facet of second wave feminism. Uh-huh. Well, it turns out that that's completely incorrect. You know, it turns out that yes, there are men, certainly a lot of men who are misogynistic or who have strong views about the place of women in society, um, far less so in the United States and some other countries. But here, even in the United States, there, there are men like that. I've had hundreds of those guys in my groups. Uh-huh. However, uh, my clinical experience and what the research shows is that uh, there are many causes to domestic violent perpetration and having uh, traditional views about marriage and the place of women in society is not considered to be a major risk factor. The major risk factors, what correlates most with domestic violence perpetration would be having an aggressive personality. Mm-hmm which could be partly inherited genetically and partly learned. Um, it's growing up in a family where there is violence and abuse. Um, it's uh, having problems with emotional regulation, the inability to manage strong impulses, mm-hmm. uh, substance abuse, low income, people who are poor or uh, are less educated or more likely than than others. Uh, and there's some parallels in the criminological research literature as well, that lower income people tend to commit the most crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, being in a high conflict relationship, just being in a relationship with someone who is abusive themselves uh, predicts domestic violence. So those mm-hmm. are the main risk factors. Patriarchy really isn't, a major risk factor. This mm-hmm. has been demonstrated over and over again. Uh, in China and uh, most of South Africa, in Eastern Europe, in many countries in South America and Central America, where we all know uh, patriarchy is a lot stronger than in the United States. Mm-hmm. In those countries, the risk of domestic violence are pretty equal across men and women. So, so the idea that uh, domestic violence is a gendered crime is just not supported by the facts. Hmm. When I was trained in the Duluth model, um, I found out within a few months after working with my clients for a while, getting to know them, that the model w- wasn't sustainable. I, I wasn't I wasn't going to be able to use that model uh, in my practice very well. It, it would work for some of the guys, but a lot of them had no problems with uh, their women working or their women uh, having the same rights as them. They they just didn't know how to handle their anger impulses. They didn't know how to deal with stress. Furthermore, many of these guys had wives who were aggressive themselves, who were abusive yeah. themselves. So, um, and that led me to do a lot of investigating and research on my own. And over a period of the last 30 years, I've, you know, eventually got my PhD along the way. I, uh, been working as the editor-in-chief of a scholarly journal on domestic violence. And mm-hmm. yes, I continue to this day to um, provide groups for men and women who abuse their partners. 
Yeah. Uh, I no longer do individual work. I'm sort of semi-retired, but I do a lot of work for the court system I, as an expert witness. And I mm-hmm. testify on behalf of both battered women and the men who are unfairly accused of, of abusing them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Sounds like you're doing a lot of work. Now, the one of the things you said earlier um, about you were talking about that some men also are abused and um, both physically or verbally, but that that kind of bringing that up or that viewpoint kind of might be like non-feminist uh, or so on. And is that because in the feminist kind of viewpoint, there's the you know focus on the power differential um or and and also as i'm hearing that i'm thinking about you know i know in my training in uh domestic violence that the uh, what i remember i'm I'm not an expert in this field but that the percentage of women abusing men was very small and i I don't know if that's that's because of the definition um so yeah i would love to hear your thoughts on that you were misinformed my colleague, uh, Donald Dutton, at the University of British Columbia, he's now retired, but he's, a very well, he's very well known in the field. He actually worked as a consultant in the O.J. Simpson case, mm. working for the prosecution. Very well known. He coined, the, he coined the term the gender paradigm. The gender paradigm is a set of assumptions uh, that permeate our society and that permeate domestic violence treatment policies. And if you, it's, you just voice some of that, mm-hmm. the idea that most domestic violence is perpetrated by, by men. So let's, just to review the, what the research actually says, uh, and it's not really open for debate, it's just a fact. I mean, w- when I talk about the research, I'm saying 30 years of numerous large-scale national surveys and hundreds of smaller surveys, including university students, clinical populations, and so forth, find that the rates of physical aggression between men and women is the same. Mm. In fact, if, if you look, in fact, it's slightly higher for female perpetrated aggression. So this physical violence, physical violence could be anything from grabbing your partner, throwing things at them, all the way to shooting them or stabbing them or beating them up, right? Mm-hmm. So women do all those things as, as often as men in general. Oh, wow. Women push, grab, punch, um, just as often as men do. The, dif- the main difference is that because women are typically smaller, uh, not as strong as men, and because men are, be- are better able to protect themselves, uh, men cause a larger share of serious injuries. Mm-hmm. Three quarters of intimate partner homicides uh, involve female victims. Uh, two th- I think the, the, the rates of women victims going to emergency rooms because of their uh, injuries is about two to one or three to one over men. Right. So, so clearly men cause more serious uh, physical damage. And also women report higher rates of psychological trauma compared to male victims. Uh-huh. It's not to say that male victims don't, uh, don't, suffer psychological trauma. They do. Mm-hmm. And there are women who stab and shoot their partners and beat them up and do all those things. But on the whole, men generally don't incur the same extreme levels of uh, injury psychologically uh, or physically. Mm-hmm. The other, okay, 
Psychological abuse and controlling behaviors, again, are equally perpetrated by men and women. One of the big lies in, uh, is that uh, women aren't as controlling. Anyone who's ever been married, anyone who's just above the age of 18 and been in a relationship knows how absurd that statement is. And in fact, numerous surveys, including some that I've conducted on my own show, that women are just as uh, capable and willing as men to be controlling of their partners. Now, there are some differences in the tactics used. <clears throat> men are more able to intimidate. Mm-hmm. Women are better at withdrawing sex and affection and, and certain other things. But in general, men and women psychologically abuse each other and physically abuse each other at, at comparable rates. But aside from the impact that these behaviors have on the victims, the other main area where there's a lack of symmetry, where there is a, a major difference, uh-huh. is with sexual abuse, where men you know, clearly sexually abuse women to a much larger extent than the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in almost every other aspect of domestic violence, whether it's the impact on children, whether it's the motive, the reasons for why people are violent, the risk factors, the rates, uh, aside from those uh, caveats that I just mentioned, uh, domestic violence is not a gendered problem. It's a human problem. And there are explanations for that when people, the first thing people say to me when I point this out is, well, how can that be? You know, men perpetrate the vast majority of violent crimes. And yeah. this is true. Men are more aggressive than women in general. Uh, men do perpetrate the vast majority of, of homicides and violent crimes in general. But in the home, women have more of a vested interest in advancing, uh, you know, their interests. There are evolutionary uh, and there are uh, social reasons why women are as violent as men in the home. Mm -hmm. And I've written articles on that that go into a lot of details. But um, because a lot of people want an explanation, they just don't understand. How can it possibly be? Men, you know, men are engaging the trafficking of of women. They Mm -hmm. rape them in war. They kill each other in war. They Yes, but in reality, women are uh, just as angry as men. Studies show that when asked about the amount, the, the amount of time during the day that they feel hostile or feel angry about something, mm-hmm. male and female subjects report equal rates of anger. It's just that women have not had permission to express the same level of aggression outwardly in society over the centuries as men. Uh-huh. But behind closed doors, women are free to express themselves, and they do. So um, now this brings us to the issue of uh, treatment and, you know, what does all that information mean in terms of your treatment models? If you're a psychotherapist and you're working, say, with a couple and they um, come in and, and you ask them about their conflicts and it turns out that uh, there's been some domestic violence. And by, mm-hmm. by domestic violence, I mean you know, grabbing, pushing, anything. Mm-hmm. Well, then you should take it seriously, right? You should you should look into that because if there's any domestic violence, there's a possibility that things could really get out of hand and someone could get seriously hurt. Sure. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, uh, you were probably trained, you're a psychologist, but mm-hmm. whether you're a social worker or a licensed professional counselor or psychologist, 
you probably were trained by uh, by people who were up to their necks in the gender paradigm. Mm-hmm. It's just a fact. So you probably learned that you just don't do couples counseling when there's any kind of domestic violence because of this differential power mm-hmm. uh, situation, right? Yeah. Well, again, uh, that was a that was an extreme uh, reaction to a, 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 actually a serious problem, which was that up until the 70s and 80s, when we learned about domestic violence and the fact that some domestic violence was perpetrated specifically by men to dominate their partners, mm-hmm. um, because some of these men who went into counseling would um, punish their wives for disclosing any violence during the sessions. Yeah. Um, and because in those situations, there was a power differential, um, it became sort of uh, standard for therapists to say, you know, you just can't do any kind of couples counseling. Wow. It was a gross reaction because for a number of reasons, number one, that kind of domestic violence where one person really dominates the other with serious violence and threats of violence is a small part of, it, it's just a small part of, a small piece of the pie. Right. Most domestic violence is, is, uh, occurs very infrequently. It's reactive. Mm-hmm. We would call it expressive violence where someone is angry they're stressed out, their partner yells at them and he shoves them. And then they mm. feel really sorry afterwards. That kind of domestic violence is not the kind that you see in the movies. It's not the kind that you should be concerned about where the police need to be called in. Mm-hmm. It's just high conflict couples who occasionally allow themselves to, to get physical with one another. That's yeah. not a good thing. That's not a good thing and it needs to be mm-hmm. addressed. But that's more amenable to therapy than it is to legal intervention. And what's been happening is that we've confounded serious domestic violence where there's a a legal response is required. Shelters are required to protect victims, usually women, from normal couples conflict that get out of hand Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes physical aggression. So if it's the emotional reactive type of domestic violence, usually couples counseling is a great vehicle for that. In fact, it's probably the the best uh, modality of treatment because you get a chance to work with both people. Uh-huh. Most domestic violence is bilateral. Both partners are engaging in it. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then you want both both parties, uh, both parties to be in the therapy session with you, right? Sure. That's not to say that group isn't also useful mm-hmm. uh, for lower level violence as well. But what I say is that... Um, and a lot of my colleagues say the same thing, is that for most domestic violence, uh, the therapist should have the option of the, the best treatment based on the needs of the clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering, as you're talking about the reactive and the expressive uh, kind of anger and, and the later remorse, um, back in grad school when I was doing research, I did my dissertation on bullying. I was looking at aggression, and particularly I know in some of the Gottman research, they looked at the kind of more reactive, aggressive, more versus the proactive kind of instrumental aggression, or they called it, I think it was the cobras versus the uh, the pit bulls, um, where the pit bulls were more reactive and the cobras actually their heart rate decreased and then actually would would kind of be more almost, yeah, like more, more kind of proactive in their uh, use of aggression. Um, 
Well, there's a, okay, so let, let me clarify that. Sure. I think we're confounding a couple of things here. First of all, Godman, when he was talking about pit bulls and cobras, he was talking about the more serious offenders. Mm. He was only talking about men. He, he wasn't even mentioning women at all. He was talking about men who engage in serious violence, serious injury producing violence, what he called batterers. Yeah. It's another term is controlling coercive violence. But, and he was saying that there are two major types of serious offenders. And, um, his typology consisted of cobras and pit bulls. Um, others have formulated similar typologies. Uh, Holsworth Monroe came up with a typology where she separated uh, the serious offenders uh, into two camps. One would be the equivalent of the pit bulls, which she called borderline dysphoric or dysphoric borderline uh -huh. types. Borderline personality disordered individuals are very needy mm -hmm. and uh, when they feel like abandoned, they lash out. Um, and the more, at the more extreme end, they will stalk their partners and pose mm -hmm. a real danger to them when they feel abandoned. Whereas the, um, what she called the uh, antisocial type or the generally violent type is similar to Gottman's cobras. Mm -hmm. These are individuals who don't really have a lot of, um, sympathy for their victims, but not necessarily psychopaths, but they, they tend to be very controlling and their violence is more instrumental. So uh, what I was talking about earlier was the difference yeah. between kind of more common domestic violence and more severe violence. I was talking about the difference between conflict that escalates mm -hmm. to, get to the point where there's physical aggression, where the intent is not to dominate the partner. The intent is to protect oneself from hurt, to get a point across, to maybe it's retaliatory, maybe it's jealousy, but, um, and th that's known as common couple violence or situational violence. Situational oh. violence or situational violence is, is just that. It arises in the situation. Now, if the violence occurs frequently, um, and there's, an, it, it's accompanied by a lot of overt attempts to control and dominate the partner, mm -hmm. you know, uh, threatening the partner, keeping them from leaving the house, f uh, hyper jealous behaviors, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Now you're getting into what we call battering. Now you're getting into more serious domestic violence. There's no, there's no perfect line. It's a pretty, is a gray area between sure. situational violence and the kind of violence that um, Gottman was talking about. Uh -huh. Gottman got a lot of things right, but he was also politically motivated. His book, When Men Batter Women, mentioned nothing about female on male violence. Sure. But if you read if you read his research papers as I have on domestic violence, you'll find that in the footnotes and in the tables in the appendices in his research papers mm -hmm. that he acknowledges that um, that when the when the men when when the when the, the well was, let me put it this way he acknowledges that about 40 to 50 percent of of the cases where you know he's reporting on these couples the women were also violent mm -hmm. so 
he acknowledges this, but he never really talks about it. Yeah, I never and I, I'm guessing I, I could be wrong. I, and I love Godman. I love his marital sure. uh, techniques. He's fantastic. He's done a lot of great work in the field. But I think he was really motivated by consider, political considerations. Mm-hmm. Uh, up, up until about 15 years ago, there were no books. And I mean, no books on domestic wow. violence that were written in a gender inclusive way. Uh, well, not since the early 1980s. In the, in the in the early 1980s, a guy named Peter Neidig, a uh, psychologist, wrote a book on couples therapy for Navy men and their wives. Uh-huh. And between 1985 and 2005, when my book came out, over a period of 20 years, there were no zero books that treatment books on domestic violence that acknowledge that women could be offenders. So. Sure. There's only one explanation for that, you know, and that's political consideration. So, so Godman, uh, as, as great as he was in, in uh, devising some wonderful marital uh, and science-based marital tech intervention techniques, um, unfortunately, played the political game. So, when when also I must say that the idea that calling clients cobras and pit bulls is rather offensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think earlier, Keith, they were asking about my, what kind of work I'm doing these days. I'm doing a lot of different things. I've got a, I'm editing a new book on the criminal justice response hmm. to domestic violence. My other work is on, um, on treatment. What's the, what are the best approaches in working with domestic violence offenders? And, and, uh, probably the most important lines of research have to do with client, client centered, motivational interviewing approaches uh-huh. where where in order to get clients especially court mandated clients to change their entire you know worldview about relationships and about violence you really have to get their buy-in you have to get them to trust you and you're not going to do that when you call them cobras sure. or pit bulls or batterers so i really object to the term it's like calling a substance abuser a slime mm-hmm. uh, uh, or a lizard, you know, we have substance abusers who do heroin Well, they're lizards and the ones who drink, well, maybe they're, uh, I don't know, you, you know, pick your, yeah, pick your epithet. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so I've done a lot of different research projects and uh, what I'm really focused on, what I've been focused on more recently is um, weaving together lines of research uh, based on interviews with men in batter intervention groups, getting their their input, mm-hmm. ethnographic study of men in batter intervention, getting their input on what works for them, along with uh, lines of research on motivational interviewing mm-hmm. and other client-centered approaches. Uh, that's been a big emphasis in my trainings recently. Um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I was doing more of the research on family interventions, what we're talking about now, couples counseling. I've kind of veered away from that a little bit, mm. only because in reality, I get very few couples uh-huh. referred to me for domestic violence. So, sure. um, but there's, if you have a couple that are engaged in situational violence, um, then it's it's really, it's best to work with them um, as a couple, if, if they're willing to do that. 
Now, for yourself, how are you assessing um, whether or not you're going to do couples or individual or group? Like, you know, what are the lines? And I know, I think for some therapists, I, I imagine, and even myself, when I've worked with clients, is kind of trying to understand, you know, kind of, yeah, where that line is, how risky things are. And I think oftentimes the concern that this has happened and like, yeah, like you're saying that the men end up, you know, inflicting more damage. And so there's also, I think, the concern that once that line has been crossed, then in an instance of kind of explosiveness, something happens and, and somebody usually in a heterosexual couple, um, the, the woman gets hurt. Um, and so kind of trying to evaluate that of whether working with the couple or, you know, and, and again, you know, many people ask me when I do EFT trainings and so on, you know, I, and I don't do much work with domestic violence, um, but they ask, you know, what is the treatment? And it says, well, you know, emotionally focused couple therapy. And by the way, this might be updated now. Um, I, I'm not totally up on the latest with EFT, but that it's contraindicated. And so then they say, well, what, what else do you do then? And then I kind of not so sure at that point. Um, love to hear your thoughts on that and kind of, yeah. It's like saying that uh, with alcoholics, uh, you know, um, CBT is contraindicated and you should go to uh, AA. Mm. No. AA works for some people and doesn't work for other people. I mean, you know, it's, it's just lazy thinking. Uh, there's no substitute for a good assessment. There are some sort of guiding principles. Let's, let, me, let me just say this. If you have a couple and uh, if she's afraid of him, you can see that in the session that she's afraid of him and she's, and he, she's reporting serious violence, you shouldn't work with him as a couple. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, that's pretty clear. Work with her separately. Try to get her to establish some, some boundaries, provide her safe havens, safe resources. Uh, try to induce them to come in separately and work with them separately. And if you can do that, then maybe at some point down the road, they can come in as a couple. Um, if the violence is low level, but he has a history of serious violence with other women, then again, there's a history of serious violence. If you're going to do emotionally focused couples therapy in particular, where you're really focusing on emotions, which uh, could lead to a, you know volatile reactions in the therapy session. No, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have somebody in the session who can't control their impulses mm -hmm. doing emotionally focused therapy. If you were doing, if you were doing, if you were focusing simply on ground rules mm -hmm. or engagement, if you were focusing on safety, mm -hmm. basic communication skills, timeouts, basic anger management techniques, then maybe you could do that. Yeah. So, so it, that's what would guide me is the, the, the history of violence, the propensity for violence in the background of either partner. And then, you know, when was the, when was the last violent incident? If, you know, he had, he had shoved her around, you know, five years before, and now he's yelling again. Does that mean that he's going to be hitting her? Well, you don't know that mm -hmm. if she, you know, I would say, give her the option, tell her, well, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, the victims generally know best as to whether they're, their, you know, their safety is threatened or not. Yeah. So I would like to guide you. Um, but I think that there's another consideration. And I have colleagues who actually believe, as I do, that 
actually couples counseling is probably indicated in almost all cases. Just think about it logically. Mm-hmm. If you decide that you're not going to see this couple because he or she is too violent and they're not making enough progress, then what are your options? What if the what if the um, victim doesn't want to continue seeing you? Yeah. Then what? Then it's like then who's going to work with that couple? It's like something um, nothing kind of thing. Well, if you're working with a if it, if it looks like there's there's serious domestic violence, you don't see the couple together initially. You would see the the person that appears to be the primary victim. You would see them separately first. Yeah. You would do an assessment. If they tell you, you know, I'm really afraid of him. He's just beat me up last week. You're not going to do couples counseling. But if it looks like, okay, you know, he was violent in the past. He's doing better. He hasn't, you know, he seems to be really mean business. He wants to come in with me. The victim is okay with that. Then you see the couple. You continue your assessment along the way. Uh, but let's get to, let's see you get to a point where he's still grabbing and shoving her occasionally. He feels uh-huh. bad about it. Do you just discontinue couples counseling at that point? See, that's where I have an issue with the doctrinaires. Yeah. The people who say it's contraindicated, my response is, okay, then what? Yeah. Then what? Uh, what if she says, well, you know, I'm not going to come in here without him. Yeah. And maybe she's saying that because she's afraid or he's kind of dictating that. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm saying is if I have a couple where it, it's clear that the man is the more dominant partner, the only way he's going to get any kind of help is to come in with his wife. And maybe... Okay. Maybe the reason for that is because he wants to show that she's partly to blame. Uh-huh. Most feminists would say you don't do couples counseling there sure. because you would be allowing him to dominate her. And what I would say is, well, don't underestimate my abilities as a therapist to figure out what to do here. Sure. Because, okay, if he's willing to come in under, under those circumstances, he'll come in, you know, with her. Um, that's better than him not coming in at all. Sure. I'm not going to do emotionally focused therapy or yeah. in-depth psychotherapy with this couple. I yeah. might, the first 12 weeks, may just focus specifically on anger management and establishing ground rules. Furthermore, yeah. I'm not going to necessarily make it about him. Even though it may be about him, it may be that he's the dominant aggressor, I'm going to act as though they both have a stake in this. Sure. Okay. What I'm saying is that it's better to avoid early confrontations. What's best, uh, telling a client that you know they're a jerk and they're responsible, mm-hmm. so that you what feel better, or is it better to work with the couple and make them a more functional unit? Because what I'm banking on is that if to a lot of these guys and women who are abusive. They may objectively be the dominant aggressors. Uh-huh. They may objectively have more of a problem with their anger than their, pro- their partner. But very often the partners are engaging in all kinds of abusive or unhealthy behaviors. Mm-hmm. So it's like, why do I need to, why do I need to split hairs and point out that well they're the they're the uh, excuse me they're the real abuser? Yeah. When there's enough going on in a relationship uh, that would warrant a more objective sort of 
view of it. Sure. I guess what I'm saying is that I'm not colluding with with anyone if I'm agreeing with them that their partner sometimes does things that really piss them off. Mm-hmm. If uh, if Mrs. Andrews uh, tells her partner that he's a that he's lazy and he's useless because he hasn't found a job and he slaps her around. Um, he's engaging in a criminal act mm-hmm. and abusive behavior that cannot be in any way uh, justified. Yeah. But in order for me to help that couple work out their issues, I cannot ignore the fact that she verbally abuses him or treats him like he's a lowlife. Sure. And I will, pr- I will, uh, my line of questioning and my interventions will be based on a number of factors, including not just who's the more a dominant aggressor. I always know that. I keep that in yeah. the back of my mind. But it's also their level of acceptance of their problems, their mm-hmm. motivation, the safety factors. And if it looks to me like it might be worth exploring her uh, undesirable behaviors for a few minutes to get him to think like I'm being fair, sure. then that's a small price to pay for then uh, him perhaps listening to the next 30 minutes as she explains uh, how much he's hurt her, right? Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that if you know what you're doing, if you're a good couples therapist and you know something about systems mm-hmm. and you know something about domestic violence and you're careful, then you could work with couples even when the violence is you know, pretty, pretty pervasive. Sure. I would agree with, with the victim's advocates, however, that therapists who are not trained in, in couples who don't have a lot of experience working with high conflict couples, therapists who don't really know much about domestic violence dynamics, especially uh, battering dynamics, then they probably shouldn't be doing couples therapy. So that's yeah. the caveat. It really has to be done by someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, I think that that is really important, a, a therapist that can be able to hold and contain a high conflict couple, because some therapists can't and they are not as kind of involved in holding and sometimes if you just let them go at it, things will escalate. And I, I think the way that I've conceptualized it is that if there is, you know, that the uh, an instance of uh, aggression or violence or so on, you know, most of the times in, in the couples I've worked with, it's it's been reactive. And part I've conceptualized with the emotionally focused couples therapy, because actually the EFT does great in looking at the primary, more vulnerable emotions that are leading to these more secondary emotions like anger or so on. Um, and, and I think the concept has been around not necessarily help, not necessarily getting the victim vulnerable and kind of being, you know, just but more, I think like you're talking about safety and so on. And ideally I'm building enough rapport and relationship to be able to help talk to the, the, again, if it's a heterosexual couple, the male, and, you know, kind of sending the woman out and talking about like that it's not justified, like that kind of going, it, it validate that it makes sense of why they'd be so angry, but then it kind of crosses that line and there's really no justification for physical violence, physical threats, those kind of things pushing or so on, even the emotional abuse, and then kind of, you know, beginning to kind of help them contain some of that and work on all the other stuff, because I feel like sometimes if there is that potential for crossing that line into violence, then it, it's harder to do any of the other work. And a lot of times the clients are responsive to that and kind of getting that. And again, I'm not working in the more severe domestic violence kind of situations, but that's kind of, 
the way I conceptualize it. I don't know if that's the correct way or so on, but that's kind of my way. I yeah. Well, there's, let me just say one more, something else here. Um, we can't be that, it, there's not such a clear cut difference between physical and psych psychological abuse. Um, victims of domestic violence, male and female, victims of serious domestic violence will tell you, most of them, that the psychological abuse is worse than the physical abuse. Sure, yeah, of course. Yeah. Not always, not always, but, um, you know, so I would be careful about explaining to, to a couple that you're working with that, or giving the impression that, you know, you can never push or grab the other person ever, ever, ever. And if they do, I'll kick you out of therapy and you'll go to jail. But if you, you're allowed to just, you know, yell at your partner or, or to treat them like crap, because um, they know that they know, and you know, that a reactive grabbing or shoving incident may be very easy to forgive. Sure. But calling someone, calling your wife a cunt mm -hmm. in front of your friend or her telling you that she's going to divorce you because you have a small penis. Okay. Think about that. Yeah. What would, is that, that emotion, is that, is, yeah. well, it's, it's far more devastating and, yeah. than someone punching you in the shoulder, right? So, Let's be clear that when we're talking about crossing that line, it's not necessarily crossing the line into physical aggression. Mm -hmm. Although I agree that it's, it's uh, psychological abuse is harder to define, mm -hmm. whereas physical aggression is much more clear cut. Yeah. So that's helpful to you at setting limits. But I just want to, I just want to remind you, Keith, that, you know, couples can, can wreck huge devastation on each other psychologically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Right. That's a huge piece. Yeah. I think that in my mind, I can work with that, the emotional abuse, in a way that, yeah, that sometimes, yes, if I'm concerned that somebody's going to get so violent that they're going to physically potentially put the other person in hospital or something like that, that's kind of like, a, I, mean, I have to more be in that kind of like focus of safety um, kind of piece. And then, but yeah. But, I, I was wondering about, you know, and actually we've been talking about a lot about heterosexual couples. And I was, I was wondering about, do you have you, do you have knowledge about um, uh, gay, transgender, lesbian couples, bisexual couples that, um, and what that looks like with the domestic violence, whether it be physical aggression or emotional and how that plays out? Well, if you, if you understand that domestic violence is a human problem, it's not a gendered problem, mm -hmm. then the research on LGBTQ populations will make sense. So um, the rates of domestic violence are very similar uh, across all human beings. I mean, you know, the, yes, there's higher rates of domestic violence amongst African-American and Latino populations. That's a function of their lower income status overall. It's not a function of their skin color, mm -hmm. um, rates of domestic violence are actually highest, somewhat highest amongst lesbians than they are amongst uh, other, amongst heterosexuals or gay men. Mm -hmm. No one really knows exactly why, but the rates overall are very similar between heterosexual and, and gay and lesbian uh, domestic violence situations. Mm -hmm. um, gay and lesbian victims report 
experiences same types of power and control behaviors, mm-hmm. jealousy, threats, economic abuse, and so forth, as their heterosexual counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't see a lot of difference. Um, there just isn't a lot of difference. The only difference would be in, in the specific types of controlling behaviors that um, that are available to c- certain groups. So, for example, women are women who want to control their partners are going to be much more effective in threatening to take the kids, withdrawing affection, as as compared to say threatening physical harm. Sure. Just because women generally are not Generally, there's exceptions are not able to control men the same way, that same way. Um, gay, gay men will, and will threaten to out their partners. Mm. They'll threaten to have unprotected sex. Mm. I mean, there are, there are things, if you think about different groups, sure. there may be certain, certain, re, uh, certain things that controlling people in those groups can do uh, mm. as a function of being in that group. Mm-hmm. But in general, there aren't a lot of differences. The the vast majority of gay or lesbian intimate partner violence is low level, mm-hmm. just like with straight people. It's situational. Sure. Um, yes, there's been investigations into the psychodynamics of lesbian battering and theories around um, uh, around that that you that may explain some of this phenomena uh, lesbians women are more relational mm-hmm. women are more emotive than men mm-hmm. the lesbian community is kind of a small community traditionally has been uh experienced homophobia mm-hmm. that might that might account for the more intense relationships amongst lesbians those are some of the theories that we have mm-hmm. so it's not that there aren't any differences at all there may be some dynamics that are somewhat different among heterosexual populations, um, but mm-hmm. but in terms of the frequency of the violence and the general motives, the risk factors they're they're very they're very comparable. Sure. Now I want to go back to something that you said earlier too. You were talking about again that kind of belief model and that idea of kind of the patriarchy and and the men having power over the women, and, and that was kind of a not actually one of the central pieces. And I was kind of just thinking again, you know, almost kind of devil's advocate, you know, that they, they may not be saying that they're doing this, but is there some, you know, kind of, yeah, unconscious uh, uh, gender norms, some privilege. And, and particularly, I also think about there's, you know, a lot right now sociopolitically with white males, particularly um, feeling marginalized or demonized or so on and, you know, Right now, we're doing this interview in January 2021, you know, uh, and uh, a lot of the stuff with the uh, Trump presidency and so on. And so, yeah, I, I think that, um, yeah, it's interesting if you have any thoughts on that. And, and again, it, it sounds like explicitly they're they're not saying I'm doing this to dominate because of my gender or so on. But yeah, has that been looked at? Um, you know, whether it's kind of unconscious or implicit or so on, yeah. or something they're not even aware of because of their privilege. Yeah. Well, um, this has been explored in different ways. Let me just, let me just say this. Uh, when, when large scale, large scale surveys have been conducted where women have been asked about their 
the violence that they perpetrated and received, when they've been asked about their violence, and there's about 15 studies I'm aware of where they were asked, when you were violent with your partner, what percentage of the time were you, did you initiate the violence as opposed to respond to your partner? Women are just as likely to, as men to say, I initiated it. Hmm. So we, we know that women initiate women initiate violence by their own accounts. It has nothing to do with what men believe subconsciously or, or, sub, or unconsciously and what men have, have been indoctrinated with in terms of white privilege or male privilege or anything like that. Women, when they're asked about violence in their relationships, say that they initiate at least half the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Women who are asked about their motives for their violence in their relationship rarely say it's in self-defense. They say, when I say studies, I mean hundreds of studies. Sure. Well, maybe hundreds. Let's just be fair. Maybe four or five dozen studies show almost all of them, when women are asked about their motives for being violent towards their partners, it's very rarely self-defense. It's usually um, out of jealousy, uh, to retaliation, uh, to control their partner. Very often it's reactive, is to punish them for you know, a tit for tat. So women tell us that their violence is uh, done for purposes other than self-defense and they initiate it. Mm-hmm. So that pretty much negates theories that, well, women must be just defending themselves and so forth. The, sure. the idea that uh, just studies that, that have been done that try to correlate gendered attitudes about relationships with domestic violence find that there's no correlation. Mm. So men who think that, who believe in the kind of traditional arrangement, the woman works in the home, I work outside the home, she raises the children. Those men are not statistically any more violent than men who have egalitarian relationships. The, the most, mm. the wokest guys in Berkeley, California, mm. all right, are not, they're not any more or less violent in those guys. The key is the personality, all right? And what my colleague Don Dutton has pointed out is that men who are uh, violent towards their partners have aggressive personalities, just like the women who are violent towards their partners. Yeah. And sometimes they, they use um, male privilege as an excuse mm-hmm. for their behavior. In other words, they're using it as an excuse as, well, I'm the man of the household. Mm. Does that mean, you see the difference there? Sure. And, and you, the difference is highlighted when you look at another comparison group, men and women who are religious, mm-hmm. you know, who have religious merit arrangements. They're, you know, they read the Bible. They're, they're, there are millions of these people. There are 70, 70 million of these people voted for Trump. Yeah. They're not any more violent than anybody else. Yeah. So if patriarchy and male privilege was was the uh, the cause of domestic violence, you'd find a lot more domestic violence among these Christians, and you don't. They're not any more violent than your woke couple in Berkeley. Sure. Hmm. If you know that, uh, if you know that aggressive personality, uh, poor impulse control, and growing up in a with violent role models are some of the major risk factors, you'll know that those will always supersede. Yeah. Uh, anything else. That's not to say that our society is not, uh, doesn't have some misogynistic 
and and sexist components to it. Sure. I know we didn't get a debate about you know the extent of white privilege. I mean, it, all that pretty much exists. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm saying in terms of domestic violence, it's the the, the risk factors for domestic violence are so powerful. And the research is so clear that it's not that the societal factors have no impact. They do, but in a more oblique way. Uh-huh. Um, they certainly don't explain uh, all of domestic violence, and they don't justify something like the Duluth model. Sure. You understand, if you read the Duluth model literature, uh-huh. you know they, they explicitly say it has nothing to do with anger. It has nothing to do with with stress. It has nothing to do with substance abuse. In wow. other words, don't even bother looking at those factors because the only thing that matters is the man's desire to control his partner. So we're not talking about uh, societal influences that some men buy into. By the way, Keith, yeah. there is such a thing as female privilege, which few people want to talk about. What privilege? It's female privilege, mm-hmm. female privilege, okay? We usually don't think of women having a lot of privilege. Well, they do. They're generally awarded custody of the children. Uh, Courts favor women in that respect. Uh, There's research showing that women are arrested much less frequently than men for all crimes, including domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And because they're considered to be more helpless than men. So some of these traditional, you know, sexist, Attitudes, both hostile and benevolent types of sexism against women, mm-hmm. um, ironically, have served to perpetuate myths about domestic violence. Uh, there are the, some of the more extreme elements amongst feminists in the field of domestic violence are heavily aligned with law enforcement, which is a traditional, mm-hmm. heavily patriarchal uh, institution. And they both benefit by maintaining a stereotype of women as helpless children. Mm-hmm. They have to be protected. It's a narrative that goes really well with with cops traditionally, who uh, not all cops, but cops who are there to protect the women, the little woman, mm-hmm. from the guy. Sure. Um, and and the and some of the feminists who believe that. Uh, ironically, the women are too, are too, um, women lack the su- sufficient uh, degree of agency to and will to assault their partners, even though the narrative also states that women should be included amongst the decision makers uh, in society and so forth. So usually I will argue when it comes to this particular debate, I will argue that um, if we're going to consider women to be strong enough and ag- agentic enough to make tough decisions to become corporate CEOs, if we if we um, if we think women can can be police officers and firefighters and pull people out of burning buildings, why would we think that they're completely helpless in relationships? Mm. It's uh, un- unfortunately the sexist gender role attitudes. Have played them have played out in such a way that they don't benefit women or men. Mm. They don't benefit women in general in society for obvious reasons, but they also don't play themselves out well in the field of domestic violence 
for reasons a little bit less obvious, but women who aren't getting the treatment that they need for their violence are not really helped. Mm -hmm. They're likely to continue that violence. They're likely to become distanced from their children. They're likely to be unhappy. They might run afoul of the legal system, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, unfortunately, the the type of second wave feminist doctrine of the gender paradigm is still with us. And, you know, and when I talk with women, you know, privately, separately, uh, when I talk with, when I talk to second wave feminists separately and we talk about domestic violence, they usually are open to hearing what I have to say, but the, um, the research just isn't getting out there, you know, yeah. um, it's getting out there to, I mean, you're a, you, it sounds like you're a pretty, uh, successful psychotherapist in a really well-established practice. And yet you're, you know, you're, you seem to be holding some of those assumptions yourself. Yeah. And I can tell you because you're the American Psychological Association, just like the you know, Association, National Association of Clinical Social Workers or Social Workers are dominated by that kind of thinking. So, you know, and, and I'm a very liberal person. I'm not, you know, I'm a very liberal person, very uh, progressive. Um, and it's been kind of a challenge for me to get my liberal friends on board sure. with this idea that, you know, women are capable of inflicting a great deal of damage. And, you know, knowing that doesn't mean that um, women are disadvantaged throughout society. It's it's kind of a dual message there. Well, and I think, too, that sometimes, I, and I don't, know for others but as i'm thinking about this now that by looking at that i think sometimes the concern probably is that that will that will yeah dismiss or justify or something the the violence that happens to women and i think that that so it, it must it probably gets dichotomized in that way um but both can be true at the same time um it, it doesn't mean that that if there is some aggression from women then therefore um, that they're the the violence that's done to them, sexual violence, physical violence is 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 not uh, is not valid and not a uh, concern. One of the things that I'm thinking about as we're talking about all of this too is the is the piece around trauma. I mean, I imagine that trauma is a huge factor. Just as I'm hearing about your mentioning the violence in the home. Um, the violence, uh, the the substance abuse, and I know you know the what, what they've from the ACEs research on childhood experiences of trauma, that um, it, you know substance abuse and addiction is highly correlated. Um, you know, yeah, I think I think my my last two questions are one, any any thoughts on that and the research on trauma, and I think the other last question is that again, a lot of the couples that I hear from when they do act quote unquote badly, whether physical or uh, or kind of you know belittling or kind of these low blows or so on, oftentimes it's this feeling that. I have to do this to get them to hear me. They won't hear me unless I basically yeah. just kind of, you know, hit them below the belt uh, in this way. And I've heard that on yep. both sides of the genders um, and same sex couples that I've worked with. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, uh, yeah, that's right, Keith. I'm thinking of this survey that was conducted in England in the 90s uh, with, you know, 3,000. A representative sample of 3,000 uh, respondents. They were asked if there'd been violence in a relationship, and if so, 
what was their reason for being violent? And the vast majority said it was to get through to the other person. Um, so in addition to jealousy, control, retaliation, trying to get through, you know, the guy's watching TV. His wife says, you know, pay attention to me. He keeps watching TV. She throws a remote control at him. Um, that's an act of expressive violence because she didn't think ahead of time that she's going to dominate him. She just reacted. And, uh, and what was her motive? If you asked what her motive was, she'll say, well, I was trying to get his attention. In fact, if you really break down that motive, she was trying to control him, wasn't she? Because, um, he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't stop what she wanted. She, he wouldn't stop doing what she asked him to stop doing. And, and when he refused, she just decided to do something that she thought would get his attention. So, you know, when you're, you can analyze that, that interaction as one where she was controlling. You could also analyze their reaction as one where she's feeling needy mm-hmm. and, and ignored by this guy. And it was her desperate attempt to try to get a, a connection, right? Connection, yeah. Get responsiveness. Yeah. And, and having that connection, um, you know, which is the true motive? Well, we can debate. We can have all kinds of academic debates on that one. But the reality is that clinically, it's more useful to go with the the well-intended in, uh, in motive. In other words, stay with that because then it taps into her her needs, her fears, uh, her abandonment issues, or whatever whatever they are. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with you, Keith. That when we get clients to Talk about the real feelings. Um, I mean, this is how uh, you know we work with our all of our offenders. The male clients, in particular, are more reluctant, at least initially, to talk about their feelings. Sure. And uh, and when we sometimes do address their some of their core issues, these, these groups are not meant to be heavy duty therapy groups. But we do we do talk a little bit about their trauma. We talk about their experiences. And, uh, and the guys, when they're able to talk about those things, are able to see that their acting out behavior is just an attempt to, to, to communicate, it's an attempt to protect themselves. They, mm-hmm. I mean, if you grew up with an abusive parent and your partner is yelling in your face, it's easy to interpret that as it's just more of the same. I have to protect myself. I couldn't do it as a child, but I can do it now. I can yell. I'm bigger. I can grab her. I can keep her from doing that. Um, and that's why couples counseling is so important in these cases because you know in group we can teach these guys about these things but you know and they go home and they try to take time outs and their partners feel abandoned when they take a time out because but with a couple you can explain that the time out is not an attempt to abandon you it's an attempt to you know gain control of the situation so Yeah. Yeah. yeah trauma can be done individually but sometimes in the relationship, it's, it's important to bring up those trauma issues so that the client has a better understanding where the, their partner is coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really, I, I, I've done a lot of uh, research recently on, tra- on, the, on trauma, but specifically in terms of uh, how it's manifested in terms of um, uh, adult attachment styles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of my assessment instruments uses one of the, one of the, atta- one of the attachment style questionnaires and it looks at difference between um you know uh, what's the term um anxious attachment uh-huh. and uh dismissive attachment and 
Well, and domestic violence generally, the most severe domestic violence generally involves more of the anxious type. Yeah. But you have an anxious attachment type with a dismissive type, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Because one person badly, badly needs that validation and that connection, and the other person doesn't, because of trauma, you know, recoils from that. And then it leads to just... Recoil and especially the avoiding goes in to take care of themselves. And they kind of are going to, you know, they're, they're, they go into independent mode. I need to take care of myself. And then it creates, yeah, the withdrawal pursuer cycle. And particularly too with the attachment and, and emotionally focused couple therapy, you know, the idea of the responsiveness. And when we're not getting that responsiveness from uh, the partner, uh, we get panicking. We go into a panic because as a child, if your parent was not responding, that could mean death. Um, if you're not getting your needs met because you're completely dependent. Um, so, yeah, so very well, interesting. Um, yeah. I was going to say, Keith, uh, couples, I mean, uh, there are times in a relationship where they feel attacked by their partner. And sometimes it's all in their mind, you know. And mm. sometimes it's, you know, partly true, but they feel like they're literally going to die. Mm. If they don't respond to some kind of statement or physical act, to protect themselves it's like they're being they're being killed yeah um i mean that they're, they're so invalidated uh and again some much of the time it's all in their mind it's like you know partner says no i don't want to do that and they hear it as you're a piece of shit you're, mm-hmm. you're worthless yeah that's what they hear and the partner says i'm just you know setting limits yeah. so and the more reactive people are then you know probably the more trauma they've suffered. Exactly. Generally, unless they're sociopaths, unless they um, have that kind of personality, it's it's usually tied into the trauma. The, the problem is that if you introduce trauma issues too early, um, without some uh, success by the perpetrators in controlling their violence, um, you're putting a cart before the horse. So you know that's. Yeah. Going back to safety issues, it's well, and I think uh, I mean the piece, the last piece I guess I want to touch on um, before we wrap up here is I think you know the the you know ultimately what also needs to be access is the men's vulnerability, and I think that you know like you were saying again with the violence and that there there isn't much room for acknowledgement, and I know you know I've had clients that have been uh, victims of sexual abuse by women as child and so on. And just a lot of, again, some many white males, you know, kind of feeling like there's a discrepancy that men also are hurt by women, but that's not really given any space or room in our culture or society, which I think further ends up also leading to men being, you know, being more guarded and about their vulnerability and not bringing that out in the relationship. And, you know, I think I, I'm interested to think your thoughts on this field and whether this topic or different topic of where where things are kind of coming in the future. But I, you know, I'd be interested to see and, you know, hopeful that, that more room can be made there without it feeling like it's invalidating the, the, the violence to women um, that, that, and not that because men are hurt, that therefore it's okay that women get hurt, but more that they exist uh, you know, in, in the same realm, you know, in, in the same, you know, kind of at the same time without necessarily negating one or the other. Yeah, well, 
there is a double standard when it comes to emotions. Um, in the popular, in, you know, in the country, it's, it's pretty, you hear this all the time, men need to be more, many men are jerks who need to be more in touch with their emotions and blah, blah, blah. But in reality, a lot of the men I work with, when they actually talk about their emotions, it doesn't always go well. And one of the reasons it doesn't go well is because a lot of women, unfortunately, don't want to be with guys that are very emotional. They say they do. Now, I'm not saying all women. I'm just saying there's a, there's a large number of women. I've talked to them. I've worked with them, you know, who they really want their men to be sensitive, but not so sensitive that they can't kick ass and make money and support them. Sure. Just pointing that out. So um, that doesn't invalidate uh, what women are saying about men needing to be more communicative, right? Mm-hmm. And men are notorious for not being very good at communicating their emotions. So I've been working on that for 30 years, trying to get guys to be more emotive yeah. and more communicative. I'm just saying that when they, that when they, they do that, um, it's not like the partners say, oh my God, you're communicating, it's wonderful. Um, they run into problems sometimes because women are people and people want what they want. Sure. And uh, along with societal attitudes about women that are, you know, hostile attitudes, there's this benevolent sexism that researchers have, have um, pointed to is, is very insidious mm-hmm. and, and that women have bought into, sure. you know, the idea that, um, that we're vulnerable and we're victims. And uh, so why most young women today don't identify as feminists. The vast majority of young women in their 20s and 30s today on surveys, when they're asked if you're a feminist, they say no, but they act like feminists. They are feminists. They just, the term has been uh, tainted, you know, and one of the reasons I think it's been tainted is because there's been kind of that double standard and men know that it's all well and good if they express themselves a little bit more to their partners, but God forbid if they were to stop working for six months because they wanted to just relax, you know, and putty around the house, a lot of their female partners would, would divorce them for that. So a lot of these traditional gender role and expectations are still with us. And what I'm saying is that it's not just men that take advantage of those gender role expectations in, in the area of domestic violence, in the area of divorce. And so women take advantage of those as well. So we have to have an honest discussion about how those gender roles, play themselves out and how sometimes women take advantage of those roles, you know, yeah. uh, and how sometimes they, they don't benefit men at all. Yeah. And, and I think too, that, you know, because women are the majority ones that are, um, you know, experience sexual assault and the more majority ones that are hurt and killed by domestic violence, then that is something that's significant. Although again, that there is, you know, conflict that happens from both in, in the relationship. And to your point too, about the men sharing their vulnerability, particularly again, from an EFT point of view, you know, ultimately when we help the other person get vulnerable, they're usually saying like, I'm feeling hurt by you or I'm feeling sad that we can connect or whatever it may be. And typically, at least in the beginning stages of therapy, when one hears that the other feels hurt by them, usually they're not intending to 
you know, hurt or sometimes they are, but sometimes it's reactionary, but usually they're trying to do the thing that makes most sense to them to get closeness or maintain closeness, like, you know, shut down in a, in a fight to kind of not make it worse or to, you know, keep talking about it or throw the remote to kind of get the other person's attention. But when they hear that the other person felt hurt, they tend to get defensive or justify or so on. Um, say, well, you hurt me too, or, um, well, you're just being too sensitive. And generally, typically more women tend to be the pursuer. So that's kind of the, they're trying to share their hurt. And as you engage the withdrawer and the men start sharing their hurt, then it flips the script. Then oftentimes the women end up responding in the way that the withdrawer or the men were in that situation of saying, well, you're being too sensitive or, oh, well, I didn't mean it that way, or, well, I had to do that or so on. And so ultimately helping both of them be able to get to that vulnerability and sharing that. Um, but yeah, I think like you're saying, there's, there's kind of a demand for more vulnerability from men, but then sometimes, yeah, they get the response that, that oftentimes the women get of kind of feeling dismissed or so on. And so being able to work through especially, that. Especially, uh, and actually well, especially the clients that are, I was going to the, the clients that I work with are less psychologically minded. So if you're working with couples, they generally have a little bit more disposable income to afford couples therapy. Sure. And I think that it goes, it's a little different with uh, a lot of the clients I work with. I'm just saying that they're, they're married to partners that aren't necessarily as psychologically minded. Sure. They're married to partners who, who often are very aggressive themselves. So they just have to be careful in how they proceed in sharing vulnerabilities is what I'm yeah. saying. Um, it can go awry very easily, you know. No, I, I get what you're saying with higher income couples or couples that are dedicated to their relationship. It, you know, generally, uh, if the man is more emotive, it usually dramatically improves the tenor of the relationship, you know. Yeah. Uh, but with the lower income couples, it doesn't always work that way. And we have to be careful that we don't uh, try to get our clients to do more than they're capable of. Sure. Um, or they're ready for you know. I would say. Yeah. The um, yeah. So yeah. So I know you're working on your book and your ethnography of the experience of uh, these men. And what are your thoughts on kind of where this field is going in the domestic violence research and treatment and so on? Or what are you seeing on the horizon? Well, right now I'm really focused on my new book on the criminal justice response. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is going to be a very break. It's going to be a, well, I hope it's going to be a breakthrough book. Um, we have 16 chapters written by uh, attorneys and, and scholars mm. on reforming the, the criminal justice system. Um, and that's what I'm really focused on right now. Not just making sure that uh, the, the police don't just arrest guys because of that sort of gender paradigm, but also that we don't overreact and that we don't put in jail people that can be handled in different ways. So we have, we have chapters on restorative justice alternatives. We have chapters on, uh, on alternatives to arrest, deferred prosecution, the use of couples and family therapy when it's safe. Um, things, you know, reforms of that nature. And I'm looking forward to that. Reforms. Larger systems. Yeah, um, that's not to say that that lots of people, you know, don't need to be arrested and held responsible. They do. It's just how we go about it. The uh, 
prosecutors in many jurisdictions are very gung-ho to prosecute and sometimes to the point where they dismiss or ignore the needs of the victims. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the victims don't want the prosecution to go forward because either of threats of retaliation by the abuser or the money drain that, you know, they'll be faced with if the abuser is in jail for a protracted amount of time. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of, I mean, it's been a really good thing overall that there was a better women's movement. Mm-hmm. But as I said earlier in the podcast, it's had some, some negative implications that we're still dealing with. And, um, you know, one of them is the gender paradigm. The other one is the whole idea that domestic violence is this one monolithic phenomena. And there are no differences. And if somebody ever grabs you once, that means that they're going to be more violent in the future and you're doomed, right? Mm-hmm. Those kinds of attitudes. But we're trying to dispel those attitudes and provide the criminal justice system and the policy makers um, some alternative ways of dealing with the problem. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This is really interesting to hear your point of view, and it sounds like, and hear about your contributions to the field and really kind of bringing, you know, to the forefront of my mind, this kind of even larger perspective on domestic violence rather than the myopic, yeah, that user male is bad and therefore can't because it's not it's much more nuanced than that and um yeah thank you very much i really appreciate that i've enjoyed it keith thank you i appreciate you inviting me to do this all right take care all right thank you for joining us if you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com our podcast is brought to you by the institute for the advancement of psychotherapy providing in-person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. IAP provides training for licensed clinicians through our in-person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to sfiap.com or call 415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback, and if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.